Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, you told us that life down here would be rough. You said that we would have trouble, but that we were to take heart because you've overcome this world. And we're grateful for that. We're grateful, Lord, that the hope that we have, that this is not the end, that uh, to be absent from this body is to be present with you. And we're thankful, Lord, that you are making a home for us in heaven where everything is the way that it's supposed to be. But until that day comes, give us faith to be strong. Help us, Lord, to leave the broken pieces of our life in your hands so you can make something beautiful out of it, so you can restore it. You're the only one that can do that. You're the only one that can bring good out of bad. And so we ask you to do that in our situation, in our world, with our country. God, put the broken pieces back together again. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. A little boy is born to a mom and a dad. They are so excited. This little boy becomes the apple of their eye. A dad so excited that he names the child after himself. Around the age of two, the child has a hard time walking from one place to the other. They take him to the doctor. They find out that he has a brain tumor. And even though they go through all the different tests and all the different treatments and all the different surgeries, he dies by the age of five. It's not supposed to be this way. A teenage girl, 18 years old, decides to go out and party one night with a bunch of her friends. And she parties a little too hard, gets so drunk she passes out. Her friends put her in the car in the passenger seat. They don't put the seat belt around her. Her drunk girlfriend gets behind the wheel of the car, assuring everyone that she can get them home safely. She does not. She wrecks into a telephone pole. The girl flies through the windshield, comes back with such a force that when the paramedics get to her, she's unconscious. For the next 30 days, she'll lay there in a hospital bed unconscious, and when she finally does come true, uh, she'll have brain injury that will last for the rest of her life. She'll never be the same. It's not supposed to be this way. A virus in China we see on the TV, it's called a coronavirus. And we've never heard of anything before in our lives. But we think, well, it's feel bad for the people in China, but at least it's not here in the United States. We watch with horror as the entire town is shut down. We watch as we see their hospitals absolutely overrun. People are dying left and right. And within a matter of weeks, it comes to the United States. And before we know it, our government officials are telling us that we need to have a stay-at-home order. Everything is being shut down from small businesses to churches and everything in between. It's not safe to be in a crowd of people anymore. And so we begin to do a thing called social distancing, staying six feet away from every person that we can. And we begin to wear masks, not even knowing if they work or they don't work. All of a sudden, toilet paper goes flying off the shelves like we've never seen before. Why? I still have never figured that out. But I can tell you there was many a morning I was outside of Target waiting for my shot at some TP paper. All told, before it's all said and done, several, well, hundreds, thousands of small businesses have to shutter their doors forever. And at the end of the virus, well, over a million people have lost their lives. It's not supposed to be this way. Did you know that last year, worldwide, 9.5 million people died of cancer? 17.6 million people died of cardiovascular disease. There are now 140 million orphans worldwide. 
There are 690 million people who will go to bed hungry and malnourished while 40% of the food that's produced in the world rots away uneaten. And 264 million people of all ages suffer from depression. I think that number has gone up since I started this message. What in the world happened to our world? There are now wars and rumors of wars. There are earthquakes and tsunamis and famines and all kinds of natural disasters. What happened to us? Because this isn't the way that it was supposed to be. Well, at the risk of sounding too simplistic, let me tell you what happened to us. Sin is what happened to us. Because in the beginning, when God made the heavens and the earth, in the beginning, when God put Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, it was exactly the way that it was supposed to be. Adam and Eve walked with God in the coolness of the garden. There was no animosity between us and animals, lions and tigers and bears, oh my. They would just come up right to Adam and Eve with no fear of, of anything happening between the two. Everything was just absolutely perfect, and then everything fell apart. Uh, before sin came into our world, there was no one getting jealous over someone else. There was no one envious about somebody else. There was no one lying to your face. There was no one gossiping behind your back. Uh, th there was no one stealing stuff that wasn't theirs. Just out of curiosity, you can play along at home. How many of you have had a vehicle or something else stolen throughout the course of your life? Just put your hands up real high. Oh, my goodness, we do live in Albuquerque. All right, that makes sense, doesn't it? No, nobody walked into a business and just grabbed a whole bunch of clothes and just picked them up and started heading out the door as if somehow that was okay. Because it wasn't okay. It's not the way it's supposed to be. Nobody was wounding somebody else with their words. No one was cheating on their spouse behind their backs. Nobody was addicted to drugs or alcohol or pornography. Friends, in the beginning, it was beautiful. It was just the way it was supposed to be. Adam and Eve walked with God in the coolness of the garden. And the Bible tells us that Eve was smoking hot. And Adam was the most handsome man on the face of the earth. Because he was the only guy on the face of the earth. And they were naked. Oh, friends, they were naked all the time. Did you catch that? I think that's, that's a scripture we need to cling to. Don't you think for married couples? I think that's God's will. I think I could back that up with the word of God right there. Naked all the time. Everything was perfect. But what happened? What well, stupid tree happened, didn't it? God put a tree in the middle of the Garden of Eden. And he told Adam and Eve... Don't eat from this one particular tree. Let's look at it. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. So here's the big question. Why did God plant the tree? I mean, if I'm Adam, I'm probably pulling God aside and say, hey, God, I don't know about this tree idea. I don't think that's a good idea, to be honest with you. I mean, it's right there in the middle. I don't think you have anything to worry about with me. But that woman that you made for me, she's kind of got shifty eyes, to be honest with you. And I'm not so sure we can you know, trust her. You know what I'm talking about right now? Why did God plant that tree? You ever seen the movie Beauty and the Beast? It's this beautiful Disney film, isn't it? The Beast captures Belle's dad because he comes and trespasses on the property, locks him in a cell downstairs. Belle comes and finds him. She exchanges herself 
for her, for her dad so her dad can be free. So now she's captive to the beast. And so we watch the story unfold and, and we see the hardness of the heart of the beast begin to get softer and softer towards Belle. And even though Belle doesn't have any say about whether she can stay or go, she has to be there. She's a prisoner. We think that there's a love story that might be happening here. You might call it the Stockholm Syndrome. I call it a love story. That's what I call it. And so there's this climactic moment in the movie when you feel like the both of them are falling in love with each other. And you know what this means. If she shares her undying love and devotion to the beast, then the curse over the castle will be lifted. And this is the moment in the movie we've been waiting for. And the beast is holding on to Belle's hand. And she's looking deeply into his eyes. And he's looking deeply into hers. And he's getting ready to express his love for her. And you just know that she's going to express it back. But she says, hey, can I look in the magic mirror one more time, see what my dad is doing in this moment? So he hands her the mirror, and she looks, and she sees that her dad is in great distress. She says, I must go to him. Before the beast can share his undying love, she must go. Will he let her go? He says, then you must go. And she runs out. And you remember Cogsworth? He's ticked off. He's like, why in the world did you let her go? This was our opportunity. This was our chance. The curse could have been lifted. Do you remember what the beast said? He said, I had to let her go. Why? Because I love her. Listen, God puts this tree in the middle of the garden, and he knows. He knows there's a real chance that we're going to rebel against him. He knows that there's a real chance that we're going to choose the tree over him. And he knows the heartache and the pain that that's going to bring to him. He knows the heartache and the pain that that's going to bring to us and into our world and how sin is going to break everything. But you need to understand something. You can't have a relationship with someone unless they choose to be in the relationship. And so God says, this is the choice that you're going to make. You choose for me or you choose against me. And so chapter 3 comes rolling around, doesn't it? And we don't know how much time goes between chapter 2 and chapter 3. Could have been a couple of weeks, a couple of months, maybe, maybe years. We, we don't know. But we do know that the serpent comes in. And every theologian will tell you that the serpent represents Satan. And he prowls in there. And the Bible says that your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Here's the question. Where, where in the world did Satan come from? Were you ready for this? God created Satan. Satan was an archangel. He was given a choice just like we were given a choice. He was given a choice to love God, to worship God. But he got to the place in his life, he said, you know what? I don't want to do this anymore. I, I think I, I'm better and stronger than God is. And I, I'm going to rebel against God. And somehow he convinced a third of the angels to rebel against God. There was a great battle that took place in the heavens. There's two places of scripture that talk about this. Ezekiel chapter 28 says, you are the model of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. You were anointed as a guardian cherub, for so I ordained you. You were on the holy mount of God. You walked among the fiery stones. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till wickedness was found in you. Though your widespread trade, you were filled with violence and you sinned. So I drove you in disgrace from the mount of God, and I expelled you, O guardian cherub, from among the fiery stones. Your heart became proud on account of your beauty, and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. So I threw you to the earth. Satan started prancing his stuff like he was all that. 
He thought he was beautiful because he made himself beautiful, but his beauty came from the Lord. He didn't want to give any honor, didn't want to give any credit, didn't want to give any glory to God. And Isaiah chapter 14 tells us that Satan's biggest issue was his pride. He says over and over again, I will ascend to the throne. I will do this. I will do that. I will get all the praise. I will get all the glory. So there was a battle that happened in the heavens, and God kicked Satan and that one-third of the angels down to the earth. Did you know that most theologians believe that Satan and his demons were here on this earth long before we were? Look what the Bible says here in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. The earth became a place of judgment for Satan and his demons until the time of their sentence will be carried out. Genesis 1, 2 continues. The Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. All of a sudden, God begins to bring order out of chaos. Job chapter 38, verse 7, it says, The angels saw God's creative power, and they began to sing together. Author Tony Evans writes, God created us, mankind, to demonstrate to the entire universe that even though we did not have the powers of an angel or the abilities of an angel, that we would trust and obey God much more than the fallen angels who refused to. Why does Satan hate you so much? Why does Jesus say that the thief has come to steal, kill, and destroy? Why is it that we have an enemy who watches our every move? who writes down our every weakness and attacks us through temptation again and again and again. And here's the interesting thing. He's in no rush to get you. He'll take his time. He'll lure you into believing something to be true that is absolutely false. Why does he hate us so much? Why does he want to destroy us so much? It's simple. He's been replaced by us. Satan was created in a place called Eden. Adam and Eve were created in the Garden of Eden. Satan was given a free will to choose. Adam and Eve were given a free will to choose. Satan had direct access to God in the very throne of God. Adam and Eve walked in the coolness of the garden with God. Chapter 3 begins, Now the serpent was much craftier than any of the other wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now, what's Satan trying to do here? He's trying to question the goodness of God. He's trying to make God sound unreasonable. He comes up to Eve and says, now, now let me ask you a question. Did God say you can't eat from any tree here in the garden? That just seems unreasonable to me. I mean, how are you supposed to survive if you can't eat from any tree in the garden? That's ridiculous right there, I tell you what. Oh, that God that you serve, he's not a very good God at all, is he? He's trying to take one of the prohibitions that God gives and trying to take it to the extreme where God sounds unreasonable. You ever been in a church where some church person does this with the scriptures? Or some preacher does this with the scriptures? They take a command from God and the command is good, but then they define the command so restrictive and so ridiculous that it seems unreasonable. And you say to yourself, well, if that's the kind of God you serve, I don't want anything to do with it. Let me give you a couple illustrations about this. The Bible teaches that we should dress modestly, right? And that's a good thing because modest is hottest, right? Remember that. Never forget that modest is hottest. That's good. Then we have somebody in some legalist church walking around with a ruler, making sure that women's shorts are long enough, making sure they're right down by the kneecap, and defining what modest really means. 
I get, I get uh, emails from time to time. I, I get letters from time to time. They're, they're so sweet, these people, I tell you what. I, I lately been getting a couple of letters about what clothes I wear. Isn't that weird? But they don't like that I wear tennis shoes. They don't like that I have jeans on. They don't like that I have a pullover on. They, they say, you know, you should come to church and you should dress with your very best. And I always say, where do you find that in Scripture? Is that in Second Hesitations 5-4? Is that where you find that right there? Come and dress your very best. Where does that say that in Scripture? So I don't know if you know this or not, but gentlemen, you're supposed to have a suit and tie on right now. You're outside of God's will. And ladies, don't smirk too much. You're supposed to be in a nice dress. And we've got to make sure it goes all the way to the floor. We'll get the ruler out real quickly for you. Make sure it's all the way down. You see what happens? God says, hey, I want you to dress modestly. And then some legalist person says, well, let me explain to you exactly what it looks like to dress modestly. And it looks ridiculous. And we say, well, that's what God wants. That's unreasonable. That's, that's crazy right there, right? And they'll say things like, you should dress your very best for God. Wait a second. Doesn't the word of God say that God's more interested in the heart, that man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart? Listen, around here, we just want you to wear clothes. And cover up everything you can cover up, because nobody needs to see that right now. understand? But come as you are. But don't leave as you are. Have an encounter with God and let him change your life. Let me, let me give you another one. There's a great prohibition in Scripture that says don't get drunk. That's a great prohibition, isn't it? Have you, have you ever met an intelligent drunk person? I never have in my entire life. Drunk people are absolute fools. They make fools of themselves. They do damage. They do damage to themselves. They do damage to other people. So it's a good prohibition. God says, listen, I don't want you to get drunk. Then you get some preacher who gets up there and says, you shouldn't drink alcohol at all. And you're thinking to yourself, man, I'm getting a fever. It means I can't even have NyQuil. That's ridiculous right there. You see what they're doing? They're trying to make God sound unreasonable. So Satan comes to Eve and says, oh, I'll tell you what. He said, you can't eat from any tree, can you? What a crazy God you worship. Now Eve fires back. Look what she says. She says, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. Nowhere in this passage of Scripture where God told Adam and Eve they couldn't touch that fruit. Do you see what she's trying to do? She's trying to make the commands of God unreasonable. You, you can't look at it. You can't even touch it. What's she looking for? She's looking for an excuse to rebel. You ever read the word of God and a scripture pops out and it's like something you need to do and you're, like, you're ticked off about it because you don't want to change? And so you make God seem unreasonable because what you really want to do is the wrong that's in your heart that you want to do? Listen, if you're looking for a reason to rebel, you'll find it. You can take any command of God and take it to an extreme and say, well, that's ridiculous. He's unreasonable. I'm not going to follow after a God like that. That's exactly what Eve is doing. Look at what Satan says. You surely not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, there's some truth to that, isn't there? Her eyes will be open. But not in the way that she anticipates. You see... Satan doesn't tell you about the psychological abuse you're going to go through after you have the abortion. He tells you everything's going to be okay. And then once you've done the act, your eyes are opened and you live with that regret for the rest of your life. Oh, your eyes are open. Not to the things you want to see. 
a sexual sin that you were involved in or currently involved in before marriage. No, he doesn't tell you that it's going to follow you the rest of your life. That it'll move into your married relationship as well. Oh, he, he didn't want you to know that. Oh, your eyes will be open. But not the way that you anticipated. There'll be a day. I hope not. But there'll be a day, possibly, when you're sitting in your front room and your grown children are sitting in that room with you. And you look around the room and you realize you weren't there for them. Because you cared more about success and power and making a name for yourself than being in their lives. And you thought that was the way to give your life. Providing things for them that you never had. It sounded so good, didn't it? But now all your eyes are open to is the regret and the time missed. You missed the greatest season of your life. Watching your kids grow up. Oh, your eyes will be open. But not in a way that you anticipated. The addiction to drugs, the addiction to pornography, the addiction to alcohol. You never imagined when you got involved in those things that those things would drive you for the rest of your life. That even when you gave those things over to Jesus, that they would always be in the back of your mind waiting to come to the forefront to haunt you once again. Oh, her eyes were open, but not in the way that she intended. Here's the question we got to ask ourselves. Why did she do it? Why did she take the fruit? I guess the better question is, why do we, why do we rebel against God? Why do we do the direct opposite of what we know we need to do, of what God would have us to do? Why do we try to rationalize and justify and make the commands of God seem so unreasonable? You know what I think it was for Eve? She wanted to be her own God. Isn't that what he promised? He said, if you eat that fruit, you'll be your own God. You can call your own shots. And she liked that an awful lot. She said, nobody's going to tell me how to live my life. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. I'll live my life the way I want to live my life. I want to eat that fruit, then I'll eat that fruit. So what does she do? She takes the fruit, and she eats it. And here's my question. Do you think this is the first time she was standing by this tree? This is the first time in Scripture it's recorded. But come on, I don't think it was the first time she was standing there with Adam, do you? I think she hung around that tree an awful lot. I think she thought about that tree all the time. I think she thought about that fruit all the time. Isn't that the way sin goes? It always starts with a thought. Every sin you've ever committed begins with a thought. And if you don't remove that thought and fix your eyes on Jesus, you keep that thought. Here's what's going to happen. You're going to start imagining it. You're going to think about it, then you're going to imagine it, then you're going to desire it. It's all you're going to think about. Then you're going to manipulate your schedule, manipulate where you go to be involved in that which you know is wrong. And that's what happens here with Eve. It says, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. This is the moment our world was shattered. This is the moment that death came into our world. Cancer came into our world. Leukemia came into our world. Viruses came into our world. This is the moment that darkness entered into our world. This is the moment that pain and heartache and suffering entered into our world. And now nothing was the way that it was supposed to be. And Adam and Eve, their eyes are opened, aren't they? Where are they open to? To their shame. 
to their regret. And they realize that they're naked. And so they try to cover their nakedness with some leaves. The Bible says, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? After they sinned, what was their response to God? Did they run to God? Did they come clean? They hid. Truth be told, we've been hiding ever since. Hiding in our shame. Hiding in our sin. Hiding in our regret. And who's the one that pursues us? God's the one who came walking in the coolness of the garden. And what did he say? Where are you? Where are you? Is God lost? Has he lost Adam and Eve? Does he not know where Adam and Eve are? No, he knows exactly where they are. He's waiting for them to come clean. What are they doing? Hiding. Afraid of what God's going to say. Afraid of what God's going to do. They believe that there's no hope for them. Do you remember when you were a kid, you'd play hide and seek? You remember that? I love playing hide and seek when I was a kid. We'd get all the neighborhood kids together. We'd rope off about a block and we'd play hide and seek. This is back when kids could actually play in the front yard. You know what I'm talking about? It was wonderful. It was so much fun. So we had this big area, several, just a block of just home after home after home, tons of hiding places. Of course, we'd pick somebody. They'd count all the way up to 100. When you'd hear 100, you ready or not, here I come. And we'd all be hiding somewhere. Best hider there was was my brother Jeff. Oh, he was a phenomenal hider. He could somehow suck his body into places and little cracks and crevices that no person should ever be able to get in or out of. How he did it to this day, I will never know. But we would play hide and seek, and the way we played it was when you were found, you would join with the other person who was seeking out people, and so there'd be more seekers, so you'd find more kids in the neighborhood. My brother would never be found. My brother was so quiet. He was so stealthy. He's like a snake was what he was. He's like a snake out there. You didn't even know he was there. Well, 10 minutes would go by. 15 minutes would go by. Everybody's being found, and everybody's laughing. Everybody's having a great time. We're all saying, where's Jeff? Where's Jeff? I don't know. I don't know. And my brother would be like, <laughs> about 20 minutes in, Jeff got tired of hiding. And he would cough. Or he'd start making some kind of sound. And if we couldn't hear him cough or make a sound, he would eventually come out of hiding and say, here I am. And we'd say, oh, my goodness, where were you? That's a great day right there. Why did he do that? Why didn't he just say hiding? Well, here's the thing. Hiding's fun for a little bit of time. Hiding is thrilling. No one's going to find me. I'm never going to get caught. But then after you've been in it for a while, and you hear everybody else having the time of their life, you realize that hiding isn't where the fun is. But coming out and coming clean is. Do you remember that little phrase you used to say when you got tired of looking for the people and you couldn't find them anymore? You'd say, Ali, Ali, oxen free. You remember saying that? 
And as a little kid, I always thought, what do ox have to do with hide and seek? It never made, ollie, ollie, oxen for you. It never made sense to me. So I looked it up this week on Google. Do you know it's a German phrase? I didn't know, but I speak German. Ollie, ollie, oxen for you. That's a German phrase. Do you know what it means? Everybody free. But you got to come out of hiding to experience it. You got to come clean. What do Adam and Eve do? Well, next week we'll find out. The biggest question is, is what are you going to do? Because some of you didn't anticipate coming here today. But you're here. And you've been loaded down by guilt and by shame and by a past that you just can't seem to escape. And you've been hiding for a long, long time. And you've heard the voice of God call out to you, where are you? God knows where you are. Do you know where you are? Ali, Ali oxen free. Everybody free. But you got to come out of hiding. I'm going to pray. And as soon as I'm done praying, Daniel's going to come out with his guitar. We're going to sing a song. Pastors are going to come here at the very front. If you're tired of living in guilt and shame, if you're tired of having a relationship with God that's not close and intimate, if you're just sick and tired of the way life has worked out for you and you want a fresh start with Jesus, I'm going to ask you to do something very courageous. I'm going to ask you to come out down the aisle, come down and extend your hand to the pastor. We're going to take you to the first steps room. We're going to talk to you about a relationship with Jesus. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, too many of us have been hiding in our shame and our sin for far too long. And in the beginning, we thought it was going to be so great. We thought it was going to be so much fun. But we're just sick of it. And we want to feel free again. We want to experience you, your grace, your love, your forgiveness. And so, Lord, I pray for a moment of courage. You say in your word that if we acknowledge you, before men, that you will acknowledge us before your Father in heaven. So I pray, Lord, in this moment when we get ready to sing, that immediately someone would come down and say, I need Jesus in my life. I'm tired of living the way I've been living. I want Jesus to make things right. I'm coming clean. I want to be free. Give us courage to make the decision that you would have us to make. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.